BBCC episode 34, my realization of the day. Again, guys, we're at the end of December, and I'm still not a holidays person. However, I'd be lying if I didn't say I wasn't trying to appease the algorithms by doing this Black Christmas special episode. Um, Christmas isn't even like a big holiday to me anymore. I'm not religious, so it's just like kind of my default now, so that way I'm celebrating something and, you know, not being weird. Um, but we'll see if that even works out for this episode because I am talking some controversial takes here about the movies that we're talking about today. So we'll see if I end up on the algorithms naughty or nice list here for the Blade Blunt Cinema Club. Bah fucking humbug. Merry Christmas. Hello, hello. It is your boy, Devon Taylor here, aka underscore daddy disco on Twitter and Instagram. And this is my horror podcast, The Bloody Blunt Cinema Club. Welcome. I'm glad you could join the cult today. We have a great program in store for you. This is the last episode for our month of December. We're talking cold hearted horror movies. We've been talking cold as in like temperature and themes wise but then also holiday horror of course and to close it out a few days before christmas is the black christmas special the three incarnations of the film are like vastly different so this conversation today has some range it also has a special guest but we will get to him in a second just need to take a minute to mention five-star iTunes reviews. Yes, you know where I was going with this, and this is the second-to-last episode of Blade Blunt Cinema Club for 2020, and what I would love more than anything is to get a few more five-star iTunes reviews on the boards so that way more people can start to find this podcast in 2021. We're trying to do some big things here, people, and I want to, um, you know, get as many ear holes onto this show as possible, so please go on Apple podcasts or iTunes, wherever you're listening to this podcast. Even if you're not listening, if you're listening on Spotify, open the Apple Pods app anyways and leave a little five-star iTunes review. I'd appreciate it. And now, with all that out of the way, let's go ahead and get our special guest in here and start this show off properly. All right, and we are back from our little brief break, um, the little intro, because we have our guest waiting, and I got to guest on his podcast uh, not too long ago, The Daily Horror Habit, and um, we talked about Starry Eyes, one of my favorite movies ever, so I'm glad to have him on my show now, and we already had like a great conversation, so I know this one's going to be really great, and we are talking, of course, Black Trip... And we are talking, of course, Black Christmas times three. We're talking all three versions today. Um, welcome, Jay Krieger. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here after our awesome chat a couple of a uh, couple of weeks ago. Yeah, I absolutely loved uh, getting to gush starry eyes with you, you know, and um, you know, getting to take the take the reins out of my hand for a minute. But now they're back. 
now you're on my court and we are here talking some holiday horror. Um, we are going through a cold-hearted December where we are talking holiday horror films and films that are just in general cold. But this is the Christmas episode. So um, if you guys are Christmas people, uh, Merry Christmas to you, I suppose. Are you a Christmas person, Jay? I am. Yeah, definitely. Get to uh, one time of the year where I get to kind of get to see family because not a lot of my family lives are there. So I definitely, uh, I definitely cherish the holidays, just a, an excuse to get to hang out with fam and stuff. Oh yeah, definitely nothing wrong with that. Um, I mean, I guess me, I'm not a fan of Christmas really, but I think it's me. I'm more of a fan or I'm more against, you know, people's kind of fakeness and the commercialization of you know Christmas and things of that nature and I don't know it it is a weird time of year but then I guess you know I'm not other people aren't as fortunate as me that you know they get to see their family on regular basis and like kind of stuff like that you know a little bit more often um so you know I mean I do like I do like Christmas things but it's just not my I, I I don't get extra uppity about it. So we're going dark for this episode talking Black Christmases, right. of course. Um, but before we get into that, you know, we usually do movie recommendations, but we do have three movies to talk about. So I just wanted to give Jay a um, moment to kind of give his little horror background on, you know, like how you got going in horror and starting uh, your podcast. And then we will uh, talk about uh, your favorite holiday horror. But um, yeah, give us a little a little bio. Yeah. So, you know, like everybody at a young age, I kind of stumbled upon horror. Uh, I was fortunate my grandparents um introduced me to horror because I didn't really have cable growing up. So whenever I'd go visit them, they would record stuff off of TV. And then I would kind of just be given this uh, with this wide variety of different types of horror films. So growing up, I would see stuff like The Fly and then Alien, The Thing and all of these movies. And then I would try to like smuggle a couple of those VHS VHS tapes back with me just to kind of like bring those back to uh, my home so I could enjoy those the rest of the year. But uh yeah, horror is one of those things that it's always stuck with me. And while I've had kind of like ups and downs in terms of like how engaged I was the last like five or six years, really just kind of reemerging my love of horror in a big way, which um, is kind of just like what fuels my uh, freelance writing right now, where I'm right, much like you, you know, I'm linking up with different websites and kind of writing reviews and features and things like that and digging into kind of like a really big back catalog of movies that I've missed over the years and stuff like that, which I really love with horror. I mean, it's true of most genres, right? I mean, there's mm-hmm. going to be always movies that you're going to miss out on things like that. But I feel like every day I add 10 or 15 new movies to my watch list of things that I'm just really excited by and just kind of, I mean, that's part of what I love about your podcast is that you're really digging into the different subgenres and things and finding these kind of gems that, not everybody's covering and not everybody's talking about and trying to find a unique angle or unique take to kind of introduce people to those in a way that, I mean, for me, it's, I do it every day cause I love doing it. Right. Yeah, no. And, and that's what I love about your podcast is like, you've been pumping out, you pull pump out multiple reviews and episodes out throughout the week. Um, some of them by yourself, some of them with guests. And I like the variety that you give. And we kind of talked about on your podcast, like, uh, you know, I was, pretty similar like you know horror has always been in my life 
But then there was like kind of a turning point where it became, you know, like, okay, I love horror movies, but now I'm like in love with horror movies and like, you know, having that new appreciation that definitely happened for me within the past, you know, five years or so, whenever I like decided to kind of hone in on my, you know, movie watching and coverage and, you know, be a known horror guy, if you will, you know. So I definitely love like how much uh, stuff you've been able to pump out uh, since you started the podcast. Um, And yeah, trying to find, you know, movies that not everyone is talking about. Like, of course, you know, I cover some big movies like there's certain ones that just kind of have to be covered. But it was like, you know, I ran into that problem a couple of weeks ago. We're talking the thing. And it's like, you know, what hasn't been said about the thing already right. by so many other podcasts, so many other videos. So it was like, that was one of the harder episodes. I was like, where can I come up with something interesting to talk about the thing, you know, just because it's been one of those ones. But versus like, you know, smaller movies are a little bit easier to uh, kind of give the fresh takes on. But we are talking a horror classic today. And then um, it's two remake incarnations, which I think is going to make for an interesting conversation. So before we get into that, what is your favorite holiday horror film? So mine's pretty uh, standard, I think, that a lot of people have, and that's Gremlins. I mean, that's Christmas Eve, but it's kind of, I've always associated it with Christmas, obviously, because oh, yeah. the movie is so holiday heavy and things like that. I mean, I always love it too, because I think it's a really great example of a movie that not only like pushes its rating in a big way, because it's PG, and yet it's kind of like very mature. It's one of those movies early on that, it had all these different elements of horror that I liked. And yet at a young age, I was able to kind of enjoy those things in a family uh, setting and whatnot. So I've always kind of like shown that to my cousins and their friends that come over and we all get together for the holidays. And I mean, being a, being a horror guy, like I always want to watch something horror centric, but around the holidays trying to be mindful, like not going to put on like a hardcore holiday movie uh, for the entire family, but it's like, Oh, I'm going to get some, some of my monster gooey moments and things like that in there. Yeah, for sure. I mean, Gremlins definitely plays. It is totally a Christmas movie. I mean, you know, Gizmo is a Christmas gift. So of course it it counts as a Christmas movie. And that's, you know, where it's interesting, where it's like, like I said, I'm not a big Christmas guy, but there's so many different holiday horrors that I do enjoy. And I already talked about, you know, my favorite ones a, a few weeks ago. Um, but I did want to throw out like some of the ones like gremlins that are like, you know, they are Christmas movies, but aren't, you know, it's not a big part of like the themes at play or anything like that. Like gremlins. I mean, yeah, it is a Christmas movie. It kind of has some Christmas themes, but it's not really trying to be a Christmas movie. It's being this family horror film, which I wish we had more of. Um, totally. But, um, so like some other ones that I love that are, Christmas movies that people don't exactly think about are, um, I mean, one, my favorite movie of all time, American Psycho, has a killer Christmas party. It does take place in the wintertime. Um, Batman Returns. We have a Christmas yep. Batman movie that people people kind of forget that's a Christmas movie because of all the other weird shit going on. But again, totally. we have Christmas in Gotham City. I mean, what gets much better than that, at least for me, uh, enjoying you know the, the darker side of some some films um but those are like two ones and then uh gremlins is yeah another great one you know we we need more family-centric horror again we just don't get like that that specific blend 
and I remember um, a couple a couple years ago, I got to see Gremlins in theaters, which, you know, like it came out before I was born, oh, so cool. I didn't get to experience in theaters. But, oh, my gosh, like when you like watch in theaters and you see Gizmo on the big screen, like the <laughs> animatronics are like five times more impressive. Like it is like right. it, like Gizmo looks so good, like when you like watch on a big screen. So that was like a really cool moment that I had with Gremlins. Oh, I'm jealous of that. I mean, this is very different, but I got to see uh, Alien on the big screen. They had a 40th anniversary uh, mm-hmm. re-release in theaters. Uh, and that was, I mean, it's a movie that I've been watching my entire life. And it was like getting to see it for the first time on the big screen. So I'm definitely jealous you got to see uh, Gremlins in the theaters. Yeah, I definitely love getting to see um, some of the older horror that I didn't get a chance to see in theaters. And then when they do re-releases like... um uh, Alamo Draft House was really great about doing that. I don't know if you guys have one by you. No, unfortunately not. I'm jealous. I see all the stuff online people talking about on Twitter. I mean, when when we could go to the movies safely, at least. Yeah, in the in the before times. Uh, right. But yeah, they they did uh, some really great uh, like hosted events. They would do it weekly. I think it was like uh, on Tuesdays they did horror throwback showings, and um, I saw. It. I've gotten to see the thing in theaters. I've gotten to see uh, the exorcist in theaters. Um, I've gotten to see a bunch of classics on the uh, jaws was another big, uh, fun, big screen one. And that was for my first time seeing jaws too. So that was like real special. So oh, nice. Love finding those theaters that do um, the good um, throwback showings. And whenever they appear back, we will be there. But yeah. I think we are now good and thoroughly warmed up enough to get into our Christmas movies for the episode with Black Christmas. Oh yeah, Black Christmas. Released in 1974, directed by Bob Clark, is credited with being a film that kind of jump-started the slasher subgenre, which we're going to get into. I have some thoughts about that. This was my first time watching the original (laughs) Black Christmas. Uh, The 2006 Black Christmas was my first exposure, so this was my first time watching it, and um, (laughs) it was originally titled Silent Night, Evil Night. And it is also on a few DVD covers, um, also The Stranger in the House. So it has a couple different titles and stuff, but then Black Christmas, you know, became um, synonymous with it and the name would continue on into the remakes. So what is, because you, you suggested Black Christmas, I believe, um, whenever we were deciding this. So um, going back in uh, on this most recent watch of yours, um. What uh, jumped out to you? What do you love about this movie? Yeah, so this was the original is my first exposure. So I hadn't seen the 2006 or the 2019 uh, remakes. And what I really love about the 1974 version from Bob Clark, and I mean, I only discovered this movie probably 10 years ago or something like that. But I thought it was really remarkable watching the movie again. And growing up like with slashers, everybody talked about like Halloween, right? And Mm -hmm. I mean, fantastic movie and whatnot. And yet I never grew up hearing people talk about Black Christmas. And it's interesting to me because Black Christmas does a lot of things that or Halloween does a lot of things that Black Christmas did before it. And it came out, I mean, four years beforehand. And 
And it's not to say like point fingers and be like, oh, this is inspiration or this did that before this. But it's just interesting to me that a film that is as well made as Black Christmas and it's combining several genres, right? I mean, it kind of is kickstarting the slasher genre and yet it's also got a whodunit tied in there in a really interesting Mm -hmm. way. And the story just really stands out to me as being this complex take on what people might kind of brush by as being like just a sl- another slasher movie. And yet I found on it, especially on a rewatch, it's a lot more, uh, it's a lot more to it than that. Yeah. So let's go ahead and get into the genre grinder here where we break down the subgenres of the movies that we're talking about even further. And cause I think that's, what's going to be interesting talking about these three different incarnations is, you know, each one is a very different specific subgenre and you know, so from what everything that I had heard about Black Christmas and whatnot going in, so I'm I'm gonna say this is you know the first time on the podcast I had that watching a movie that I didn't enjoy all that much. I mean, I I am here for it, you know, for what it did for the genre, and definitely like you can't ignore the Halloween influences. I mean, they are so there. I mean, and. You, you mm-hmm. see that I saw that in many articles that I was reading to, you know, that like, you know, Carpenter kind of took a lot of inspiration from Black Christmas or maybe he didn't. But I mean, I think he obviously did with like some of these like, you know, the POV yeah. shots and, um, you know, some this kind of idea of like, you know, the, a mundane, you know, group being just like kind of infiltrated by this random act, you know, and we don't really know what's going on. And so for the for the genre grinder, I kind of wanted to point out that this is more of a mystery whodunit more than the slasher. Really, mm-hmm. there aren't many slasher elements until the end. And even the end is still, you know, you don't get this big slasher finale that you'd that you'd think of. Um, we don't get to put a we never get to put a full face to Billy either, you know, in this film. So it's like, you know, because when I think of, you know, Slasher, it's like, you know, they have like an iconic weapon, they have an iconic like look usually, and like some characteristics and stuff. And it's like, we don't have any of that with Billy. So this is more, in my eyes, a pretty straightforward, um, you know, mystery whodunit. It's like, when when I hear people talk about, you know, like, you know, the jumpstarting the Slasher stuff is I always, I'm always like, you know, what about TCM? What about Texas Chainsaw Massacre? You know, mm-hmm. and then so then rewatching this, I kind of realized Halloween kind of took some of the best elements from both of those films, put it into Halloween, and then did their own thing with it. Is kind of so. What's some uh, subgenre stuff that stuck out to you? I mean, I definitely can see a lot of the elements that from this that ended up in Halloween, which I think is really well done here, and it makes sense why perhaps uh, Carpenter might have utilize some of those in his film. I mean, I love the way that the film begins because it doesn't begin with this kind of big kill or anything very drastic, right? I mean, it kind of begins with this POV uh, voyeur shot from outside. And then it's kind of just listening to this guy breathing really heavily. And before we're even introduced to any of the characters, there's this sense of being watched. And that always really stands out to me in these slashers in that it's not getting right into the killing. It's more about like the idea that somebody's watching you and you can't do anything and you don't might not even know about it or it's, you just don't know who it is. And that's an element of the film, especially on a rewatch that I really enjoyed that it was, it was, you don't know who it is, 
and you never find out who it is, right? I mean, the film an- ends mm-hmm. ambiguously yep. in a really great, in a way that I find really satisfying because it's more about the subtleties in this. And I think that was one of the things that Bob Clark really uh, strove for when he was making this and not having these big kind of gory slasher kills that we now would probably assume would be staples of a slasher, right? I mean, mm-hmm. that's, and we'll get into that with the 2006 version, but it really is about, kind of just this looming dread that is yeah. following these characters around for so much of the movie that I think he just executed on really, really well. Yeah, I definitely, yeah, the looming dread is definitely there with the, you know, some of the the way that it's shot and, and just kind of, it's, yeah, it just kind of lingers around, which I do enjoy. And it's like kind of this, looming dread over these sorority girls that are kind of, you know, set standing in for, you know, pureness, innocence, you know, it's like the sorority girls on Christmas, like, you know, what's more pure than that, I right. suppose. So, you know, you, you have that and, uh, using the, the phone calls is, um, really, were very effective. Like those are definitely, you know, the creepier moments of the film or these, you know, really creepy phone calls with these just like real guttural weird sounds and then Billy saying these like you know really perverted things and it's like for 1974 like some of the stuff it's like oh man like yeah like you know I could totally see audiences in the 70s being like oh my goodness these phone calls like are because they are pretty (laughs) like he's just like I'm gonna lick you like a rat and I'm I'm just like like you know definitely yeah definitely really creepy and then, you know, and then I do enjoy also that in the third act, we get some, I will say, like some, you know, 70s horror influence, some like Jalo influence with the way that some of these kills go down in some of the way that uh, some of the shots are framed. You know, of course, like that iconic scene whenever um, uh, Barb gets killed. And, you know, we see the shadow on half of Billy's face and he uses the, the horned unicorn and like, you know, and like the way that they cut that scene was like very like Jalo-esque. And it's like, you know, and I kind of I wanted more of that stuff like I because like one of the things that kind of bothered me was like I didn't realize that we spent so much time outside of the house in the movie and I felt like every time it like went away from the house, things kind of slowed down whenever we're focusing on the police and like the stuff going on in the town. And it's like, you know, it, it just like I feel like that looming dread like would have just like worked out so much better if they stayed in the house more. And that is something I like I, more about like the 2006 one. I definitely agree with that. I think it kills a lot of the momentum when they go out, especially like when they're searching in the park for their friend, uh, the sorority sister that's missing. And then it focuses on the fact, oh, they found another uh, different dead little girl in the park. Like all of those kind of moments definitely kill a lot of the momentum that it has. And like you had said, had it stayed contained in the house itself, I think that it would have been, it would have just heightened everything that I personally like about the movie and having that dread Mm -hmm. just continue to build and build this idea that you're basically in a cage. Whereas the reality is they could probably leave the house whenever they want. And yet they're being, they're staying there by choice. And yeah, that definitely is something that I don't think uh, is executed on all that well. And that was very kind of clear to me on my uh, most recent rewatch. But Mm -hmm. in terms of like going back to the idea that there aren't many actual like slasher moments, I think especially you touched upon like the use of the phone 
the use of the phone is still so disturbing, not only in what he's saying, like, yeah, he starts off by saying these very kind of lewd things on the phone and yeah, raises eyebrows and whatnot, but it's more about just how much you can kind of derive about Billy from those phone calls, mm-hmm. especially later when he starts imitating other people's voices. Yeah. He starts imitating an older man, a woman who clear, who I interpret that as being like his parents fighting and whatnot. And mm-hmm. it kind of speaks to the ambiguity that the entire film is laced in. Right. I mean, we don't know anything about Billy to the degree. We really don't know if the killer is actually Billy or not. Right. Cause the yeah. killer is never revealed and perhaps it is really Billy. Perhaps it's just a crazy guy in the neighborhood. So I feel like the phone calls really help with that ambiguity in a way that even on a rewatch, like is super affecting and disturbing and everybody gets the different meaning out of the phone calls. Right. I mean, Mm -hmm. again, they begin off very lewd, very straightforward. And then he starts incorporating new voices. He starts incorporating different things that people in the sorority house have said to one Mm -hmm. another, different conversations. And I mean, We'll get into it with the 2006 one, but this is why I think it's so great that they never explain anything about Billy, because instead of kind of giving us exposition or dialogue about why he's the way he is, what he's doing, we kind of are just left to take these pieces that are given to us and infer and everybody walks away with their own uh, interpretation. Yeah. Yeah. Once he starts bringing in the other voices and stuff, that's why I was like, okay, like now he's like going up a level, like he starts bringing in the voices, then he starts saying other names and like, you know, when he starts mentioning Agnes and stuff. And I think that's, I find it interesting that like, you know, that the 2006 one was able to do what it did, you know, just like taking these little bits from um the phone calls because yeah, in the phone calls you do just like kind of you're trying to piece together, yeah, this image of Billy, but you just, like, can't quite do it, you know, because we don't have enough, and we never do get enough. Um, But, yeah, so there's a lot of things that I do love about this film, though, um, that I can definitely see why it is a classic. Um, I love the look of a lot of 70s horror. Um, This one is shot and lit very well. Um, It has, like, this this warmth to it, and, like, you know, its use of the Christmas lights are very effective. Um, we got some sl- split diopter shots in there. You know, we love to see those. Um, lots of them. Absolutely. And, you know, so I definitely do love um, some of the style signatures. And then, and I also want to touch on the phone calls that have become, like, you know, very synonymous with it. And, you know, the, the phone calls are definitely, you know, the thing that continues on. It's like each all three of the black Christmases, they all have like, you know, the, the things that make them the black Christmas. Like, you know, you got phone, creepy phone calls or, you know, DMs and then, <laughs> um, <laughs> and you know, we have Billy and we have cri- use of Christmas lights. Um, we have sharp, um, everyone dies by an icicle at least once in each mm-hmm. black Christmas. So it's like, you got all these calling cards that, um, that the original lays out. And then I like, you know, seeing those callbacks in the later versions of them. And then, uh, of course, you know, we have some great characters in here, you know, Jess and Barb and uh, house mom are all fantastic as well. Uh, what are some of your uh, favorite things? Definitely. Je- I mean, Jess, I think is a fantastic um, final girl. And she's one that I, again, like, I'm surprised I don't see more people talking about her in terms of, you know, in general terms of slashers, right? I mean, people are always talking about like Laurie Strode or the various kind of like uh, Friday the 13th final girls and whatnot. And yet Jess, I think is, 
she's probably one of the more interesting ones too, in that she's, it's not just the fact that she's surviving, right? It's also, there's a scene that really stands out to me in terms of just when this film is released and the types of characters that we saw in a lot of slashers in this era, but also moving forwards. And that's really like her interactions with Peter. She never, like her boyfriend, who's very pushy, mm-hmm. uh, is wants her to keep the baby, right? Never wants, doesn't want her to get rid of the baby, wants to get married to her. He's like, well, we're just going to get married and that's what we're going to do type of thing. And yet she's very kind of very steadfast in defending her right to make her own choices, not only in terms of this, but in her like uh, larger life choices, right? She's not going to let somebody else tell her how she's going to lead her life, whether it's what to do with her body or whether like he is going to become a permanent fixture in her life as a husband. So in terms of her character, she always stands out to me as somebody that is one of the more, definitely more interesting slasher final girls, but just a character in horror in general, not even uh, just her being a final girl. Yeah, they they do a really good balancing act of, you know, having these two antagonistic forces in her life, you know, the obvious horror that we're seeing going on, but then the personal horror that she's also dealing with with this situation with Peter and they they balance it really well and you know it just give make it it really grounds her and like makes you feel for her and um you definitely feel a, a lot of empathy to her um and each three films have a layer to the story of you know something about men oppressing women and we will see right. that as the films go on it gets ramped up to uh, high high degrees and <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is gonna be that. Uh, <laughs> so, we have we have some thoughts on uh, the we, further into these films we get, but <laughs> I love how I love the 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 subtlety of the way that they you know did it with this in in the original. Though I think the original mm-hmm. has the strongest depiction of this because, like I said, it's this for sure. Uh, they balanced it really well with you know this unknown you know entity that she's dealing with. Uh, you know, terrorizing the house, but then this also, you know, very well-known uh, antagonist that she has in her boyfriend, Peter, you know. And in 1974, the uh, abortion wasn't something people were talking about, like, a lot, you know, right. especially, and it's kind of crazy that this came out in 74, and we're still somehow having those conversations in 2020. Yeah. Is... Uh, pretty fucking mind-blowing so it's like i can only imagine in 74 the reactions that you know that got from it as well absolutely and i mean bob clark i think even said at one point he said um i didn't throw that in there to like make a statement or he was like the quote i read was very flippant about his including that scene and yet it's such a groundbreaking scene like you said we're still having that conversation somehow in 2020 and yet it seems like such a radical inclusion into not only her character but the dialogue and the subject matter that i was like i don't know how you could be so flippant about mentioning that when the way that i viewed it as it's making a very clear statement but it's doing it very subtly so it's more effective like Mm -hmm. that scene still stands out to me as being very remarkable for that film and it shocked me the first time like you said they're talking about what in a movie in the 70s and they're just kind of very casual about it they're not Mm -hmm. having this massive drama uh massive blown up fight about it with one another, right? They're not getting into a shouting match in the dining hall about it, or in she's not throwing things, he's not throwing yeah, things. And... Right, it's two adults having a conversation about a serious subject matter, and 
the woman is telling the man, like, listen, it's not going to be the way you want it to be. It's going to be the way I want it to be. And it's not the very traditional depiction, especially in horror, I feel like, or for that period, like women taking a stand, right? She's not kind mm-hmm. of playing into any tropes. It's playing into this idea that I'm my own person. And yeah, there's, is, I'm going to have to deal with a killer later. But also in the grand scheme of things, like my life is my life. And I'm the one in control of that. Yeah, like 100%. I definitely um, love the way that came through. And, you know, that's the way you should do themes is you should bring them through <laughs> nice and subtly, right? That's definitely the way you should do it. Um, but there's uh, definitely some other things I love in here. Of course, we have to talk about Margot Kidder. Um, you know, I had always heard about her performance in this movie. And it's just kind of funny that people love her for just being a really good drunk <laughs> and, and getting killed real good. Because obviously she has the most iconic death in the movie, but uh, but I mean yeah, she mm-hmm. is like very hilarious and um, you know a very just like kind of relatable, grounding kind of presence to be about, and it's kind of one of the first instances of like a movie where I've heard of people you know such overwhelming praise for a, a secondary character that isn't doing a whole lot but is just bringing a lot of presence to the movie you know you gotta love those kind of actors and performances you know that because it's like you know a lot of times in horror movies the main character is the only one that gets like any sort of you know character dynamic to them and then all the supporting characters are just kind of usually there to help them out you know so it's just like you know just having someone it's just like who's not drawing any attention story-wise but just is because of her performance. Um, she's uh, pretty great in this. I always forget the humor that the movie has in it, right? I mean, yeah. Bob Clark said he wanted to make a much a much more subtle movie than maybe they initially wanted him to make. And I think that he did that by bringing levity with the humor, whether it's Barb uh, talking about turtles having sex or telling the cops that like the sorority house's phone number is fellatio and the cop is like, <laughs> Oh, okay, because he doesn't know what that is. Like, he's the idiot. In and town, now their but... cop is just cracking up. I do love that scene. That scene is pretty yeah. hilarious. And just like, he's like, fellatio. And the the other cop is just like dying. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, John Saxon, I mean, you can't, uh, you, we can't not mention him. He does such a great job of playing off of that, uh, that idiot cop who's uh, Sergeant Nash, who's just like the yeah. moron that's out to lunch. And it's like, how did you become a cop? Like, I feel like you should be like, I don't know, doing something that's not nearly as important, but. Yeah, I mean, Barb is really great in that not only like she plays a drunk, but also you have the den mother of the house. Mm -hmm. And like there's this recurring gag where she's hiding little pints of whiskey everywhere and stuff around the house. She's hiding it in the toilet. It's like got a string around it, hiding it in the bowl and all these little things. And I mean, there's even that scene where like Santa Claus is swearing in front of the kids. Just little bits of levity like that, I think, do a really great job at striking at the core of this being a Christmas movie. Yeah. Okay. It's called black Christmas takes place the Christmas season, but I mean, it has the essence of a Christmas movie in a really strange way. Right. Oh, yeah. I mean, granted people are getting killed obviously, but I mean, then you have the sorority girls who are like sisters, essentially a family as it were. And then you've got little bits of humor in there that really help to give it a kind of like what you said earlier, like a wholesome feel to it. It's not always Mm -hmm. the tension dialed up to 11 every single time. We have these brief moments of levity that it never lets you forget that like this is a Christmas movie where horrible things are happening. 
Yeah, it's like, you know, we definitely get that, but then I do like that we do get plenty of time where it's just like, we're with the characters just hanging out for a little bit, and I guess, yeah, the the Christmas essence that comes through is, you know, uh, the idea behind sororities of this, you know, found family that you have, and, you know, when it comes to Christmas, that doesn't always have to be real family, you know, it can be, you know, your found family. And uh, it definitely lends well. And then, yeah, with the, the uh, drinking house mother, you know, just like the people that are just like, oh, I got to drink to get through the holidays, you know, like uh, everyone has been there <laughs> once or twice. Um, so, yeah, the, the comedy in here is um, quite nice. Um, I wrote down the line. These girls would hump the leaning tower of Pisa if they could climb it. And I thought that was absolutely <laughs> hilarious. Absolutely. Yeah, and um, one other thing while we're just talking, you mentioned aesthetic earlier. Mm-hmm. That I, agree, I agree that the way that the film is shot is it really is quite stand out. The way that he's able to capture the claustrophobic confines of the sorority in a way that before even Billy shows up, I feel like you feel like you're in there, right? And we're almost an observer of all of the girls getting together and they're having drinks or they're having a party. And you really get a sense of kind of like camaraderie between them all mm-hmm. in a sense where you would actually believe that like these are people that are in a sorority together. You might not love everybody. Like Barb is taking jabs at one of the girls and like giving her a hard time. And yet they, st- it's still believable that they are all people that would want to spend time together. And I feel like the, <laughs> the further into the series that we get, there's a lot less of that. And that kind of definitely chips away at the kind of the dichotomy of the characters in a way that, I mean, the, at least the 2006 one, I think, capitalizes on the Black Christmas formula in a different way, but an interesting way. And yet, mm-hmm. I don't feel that the 2006 or 2019 is ever able to capture the um, just the camaraderie and like the characters that actually seem like they want to be around one another for more than 30 seconds. Yeah, no, the this definitely has the most uh, cohesive um, sorority sisterhood of the three films. You know, um, the the 2006 one, I feel like some of the actors have never even met each other <laughs> in, that, <laughs> in that movie. And then the 2019 one, it's like they kind of hate each other. They kind of love each other. You know, it's kind of messy. Mm-hmm. But uh, this one is uh, we do get just like a cohesive unit because it's like you know that idea of the family like yeah of course you're gonna like bicker and like kind of have those like bickering things you know but at the end of the day that's still you know your your family so um as a for a first time watch like I said I was more frustrated in um I guess I guess I did want a little more a little more horror beefed up a little bit you know because um, I did enjoy the third act and then, but uh, the pacing is kind of what, what really kills it for me. Like pacing is a big thing for me. And it, it like kind of, if my, if my like viewing experience is as smooth as it should be, then like, you know, it kind of leaves a bad taste in my mouth. And also I did either the, either there isn't or wasn't a score or the score was just like very forgettable that I didn't notice. Cause I love scores in movies and I didn't even write a single note down about the score. So obviously it just uh, didn't jump out to me. So that's my other criticism, I suppose. So I'll start with the score, I guess. So the score, it doesn't have, you're correct. I agree with you that it does not have a very memorable score. I think it's the way that it's incorporated periodically 
that's interesting. And I think I might be mistaken, but every time it plays that kind of that strange harp sounding noise that you hear once in a while, that's either when a character is being referenced that's already been killed or it kind of highlights an area of the house where somebody has died. And mm. so I agree. I, I'm pretty sure that that happens every time. Um, it definitely happens in a couple of key moments where they're doing this kind of montage of the rooms in the sorority where someone yeah. has been killed and it, you hear that kind of harp uh, string, mm. but I think that it's an interesting use of music in that sense where it's just like it's ident- it's identifying that something has happened to a character without actually having to say it or show it yeah which is interesting but i would agree that there's the if there is even a score in the rest of the movie now that you mention it like i can't even think about a song early on or anything like that that yeah. stands out but um in that regard yeah it's definitely not one of the more memorable uh memorable musical horrors but um yeah, on a rewatch too, I definitely don't really consider this or I don't go out of my way to recommend it as like a slasher. I mean, yeah. I would be more likely to recommend it as a whodunit because I think that, especially in that third act, like they introduce a couple of potential candidates for who Billy might be or who's in the who's facilitating the role of Billy, right? I mean, Peter yeah. is at the front of the list, obviously, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then I even started to think like maybe it's that dumb cop. Like per, per, mm-hmm. perhaps it could be him because he is very flippant whenever he has to deal with women. Right. Yeah. Every time a girl yeah, comes to him with a complaint, true. he's like, he's discounting it or he's saying, Oh, you're being ridiculous kind of thing. And yet he's the only person in the film that people keep kind of taking jabs at the entire movie. Like he's a laughing stock at work. The women are making fun of him, making him write down fellatio. He said, he doesn't know what that means. Those types of things. And the whodunit angle I think is interesting and I like that the ambiguity kind of, again, at the end of the film, we don't have a concrete answer. And that's a, I mean, I'm a fan of ambiguity in endings and just in terms of a whodunit that ends that way. I know some people will want that big payoff, but I think it, they produce enough kind of viable candidates that it's interesting for me. Throughout. Yeah, um, I will definitely uh, give props to the the whodunit um, angle as well, just because, yeah, this is the... Most well executed of the three films, um, the who done it um, becomes less and less important as the films will go on. But um, yeah, this one definitely has the most um, well executed one. And then I do love me a good ambigu- ambiguous. Ugh. I do love me a good ambiguous ending, and I also do love um, the roll credits on just the uh, phone ringing is was a pretty nice touch. Yeah, I mean, that the film ends and we assume, obviously, that Billy is still alive because we can hear him breathing in the house still. And the only cop we can see is outside. So you don't know what Jess's fate is. Perhaps he's going to come down from the attic and kill her while the credits are rolling kind of thing. Or when the phone rings, perhaps he's going to start this game all over again. He's going to start up with a new, a new set of uh, lewd phone calls, then mm-hmm. go after her, or go after the next sorority house kind of thing. So the ending of this really uh, sticks with me in a way that not a lot of uh, slashers do. Yeah, it's uh, it's like kind of it's almost very abrupt, but it it, but it really works. But yeah, so for for my first time watch, it was a I don't know, I guess I'd say conflicting viewing experience. It's I, I did enjoy a lot of aspects from it, but might not be the one that I just uh, kind of throw on if I'm wanting to just throw something on, you know. 
But on to the next one. Black Xmas, as it is marketed, because this is 2006, baby. You know how the horrors and the aughts roll. Um, Black Xmas directed, I'm only referring to it as Black Xmas, directed by <laughs> Glenn Morgan, who is known for, he directed the Willard remake, um, starring Crispin Glover, which I actually enjoy quite a bit, um, but it was a flop at the box office. So they said, hey, you want to do another <laughs> remake? <laughs> um, but he was very passionate about the original Black Christmas. He was a big fan. Um, so he was very excited to kind of do it and very much like made it known out the gate. He was going to kind of do his own little thing with it, expanding um, on the lore and backstory of Billy. And, you know, uh, taking, like I said, the, the little nuggets that we got in the original Black Christmas and then using them here. He did get um, the blessing of Bob Clark, who agreed to um, produce on the film. Um, he said he 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 was happy with what Glenn Morgan did. So <laughs> just so y'all know, the even if- Bob he approved apparently. So um, yeah, the, and this was my first um Black Christmas movie. Like when I saw this, I didn't know that there was an original. I just saw this. I saw the the crazy trailer, you know, and um waited for it to come out and come out on video and um yeah and it fucked me up whenever i watched it the first time <laughs> i was fairly young whenever i watched it uh the first time mm-hmm. around and i was just like whoa eye stuff lots of eye stuff in this movie yeah. so um what uh how was uh, your rewatch of black xmas so this is the one i actually haven't seen before and so oh, i was surprised yeah, yeah yeah this is the one that i hadn't seen i had only seen uh the original one but i mean black xmas it it was very, very jarring compared to um, the original one, my reaction, because I'd seen the original one so many times. But after about the first like 20 minutes, I started thinking about it as its own thing, right? I mean, sometimes that takes a little bit of time to separate it from the original to kind of just appreciate it for this new take on the classic that they're remaking. And so initially, I was kind of like, okay, this is a lot of demystifying Billy, which... I'm not necessarily a big fan of because I don't think the backstory they come up with is all that interesting, to be honest. I think I compared it a lot to um, like Rob Zombie's Halloween Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways, this idea that you have to demystify the slasher villain. And then what is this childhood end up being like, okay, he was, he's, he's the way he is because he was abused, whether it be physically uh, violent or sexually abused. And this is why he is the way he is. Whereas what I loved about the original film is that we don't know why he's doing it. And that's kind of the same with Michael Myers, right? And the mm-hmm. Halloween reference I was making where you don't know why. And to me, the why, the not knowing the why is much more terrifying. There's no, maybe mm-hmm. because if, at least if you know why they're doing it, maybe you could be like, Oh, maybe if I do this, they won't, they'll stop. But if you don't know the intent behind anything, then it's kind of just like, Oh, there's nothing I could do to stop this person. Yeah. So yeah, this was definitely in that time where that's what they were doing with the remakes is they wanted to expand upon things, you know, and um, the Rob Zombie Halloween is a very accurate comparison. And um, if people listen to the Halloween episode of the podcast, I was quite a fan of the Rob Zombie one. 
And because I'll say the stark difference between them is even though Zombie provided like all this, you know, backstory stuff and but they they provide the backstory, but then they also pre- presented, you know, the things that indicated that he was already off in his head already. And then he just also had these external factors that like added on to it to create, you know, that the the monster that is Michael Myers. And I, I buy into that more than here. They do this uh, elaborate backstory just to be disgusting for the most part. Cause it's like, <laughs> what are we supposed to are we supposed to sympathize with Billy? Like because it's like, OK, what is the point of you adding the lore other than just to add it? for it to be there but then also i but i will i will commend it though on you know with making the connection with agnes and giving a reason for this one to have a second killer you know this one they add a second killer into the mix in addition to billy you have agnes running around um killing people as well so that's where like the the whodunit comes from in black xmas is you know, because um, it's like we as an audience already see that Billy is broken up, but we see that killings are happening before Billy gets there. So we're like, OK, mm-hmm. wait, what's going on if Billy's not even there yet? So that's where we get the whodunit there, but they don't execute it as strongly. But I will say um, that is where the expanded lore did um, work in. And I mean, yeah, it is just like. I guess, like, shock value backstory, because it's just like, oh, my God, like, his mom is just pure evil to him, and then fucking, yeah, like, rapes him. Putting it lightly. Psychological <laughs> abuses him, like, all the things. So it's just like, 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 I mean, I do watch it, and I'm just like, oh, like, yeah, I feel pretty icky about this right now, you know, and then we kind of see where it leads to in him disfiguring his daughter slash sister and then killing his parents and then eating some flesh cookies and also eating eyeballs because <laughs> he eats we love eyeballs in this movie eyeballs. we love eyeballs i was just gonna say yeah to the point i was like rubbing my eyes the entire movie because it got to the point where like every other character is getting their eyes removed yeah it like starts off slow and it's like okay one person loses an eye and then a couple people and then by the end of the movie it's just like yeah everybody's eyes are going everybody's eyes (laughs) (laughs) so let's get into uh the genre grinder here where um we're gonna kind of break it down a little bit so it's like here is where we get more of the kind of more slasher elements um rather than the whodunit there um, because we have not one, but two killers running around. I mean, there's lots of blood. Um, like, I don't even know how these, like, what is he doing that makes people's just, like, blood pockets just, like, explode <laughs> when he kills people? I have no idea. But, I mean, I do like lots of blood. Blood on the snow is a great winter horror aesthetic. We love it. Um, so, this one is definitely more the straightforward slasher. I like, like I said, um... As compared to the first one, I like that this one stays mainly confined to the house. And and that's what I do enjoy about the backstory, too, is, like, they do all this to also kind of add, you know, this lore to the house. You know, this, you know, this one, why would a sorority buy this house knowing that all this ridiculousness <laughs> happened? Yeah. But then again... It, I do know that it is hard to get, you know, uh, house charters for sororities and fraternities. So I actually do maybe kind of buy into like that they would uh, have that house and then 
this lore just like kind of adds on to it and then you know throughout the movie the house is definitely kind of integrated a lot more into the film like when we have like Billy looking through peepholes we have lots of crawl spaces to have fun in in this movie um so I I will say the lore actually adds to the house as well but um so it's like we are this is self-contained thriller slasher territory so what's some uh, subgenre stuff that stuck out to you I definitely like that aspect of the lore that you mentioned. I definitely like that they show how, I mean, Billy knows this house better. Billy and his sister know this house better than anybody. So they kind of, it's almost like showing behind the slasher curtain as if you will, like people always say, Oh, well, how does, how does the killer get to here and there? Well, this is his childhood home. He knows mm-hmm. this house better than anybody. He has all of these different routes through floorboards and stuff. He's able to get from the basement to the top floor in a couple of seconds. Cause he just climbs up from the attic. Like that's the one thing that uh, <laughs> comparing it to the original, it's like nobody saw Billy climbing up and down that one access hatch the entire movie. Yeah. Whereas in the 2006 one, Oh, he, he knows this house. He's got all of these little passageways and things like that. So in that regard, yeah, I agree that the lore with the history of the house is actually more interesting than it's actually touched upon. I think in either of the other two films, but in terms of this being, like a straight up slasher compared to the original one. I think that while the killing is very excessive in a, it's actually excessive in like a pretty great way. Right. He never yeah. kind of holds back on how gruesome the movie is going to get. He's again, it, it starts out slow, right? He killed Billy kills somebody with a, uh, with a candy cane, get a little eye gouge. And then it gets to the point where everybody's getting their eyes gouged out. He's eating eyeballs. He's making skin cookies. I mean, you get that fantastic, uh, Icicle kill, which Billy doesn't actually do, but you get Still the uh, the ice skates kill. The ice skates kill. He doesn't like. Is... He doesn't just like slash your throat with an ice skate, right? He like caves her head in with it, and it's so over the top and so distractingly gory. But the film commits to it in a way that, had it pulled punches at any point, it might have been a case where you're like, okay, either this needs to go more in that direction or it needs to pull back on that. And I kind of do respect the or I do respect the movie for going fully into the gore and just letting that be the star of the show. Even if I think it does hurt a lot of the, uh, like the character development and things like that, which I don't find that this one does nearly as well. I mm-hmm. think that in terms of those scratching that slasher itch, it does it in a satisfying way. Yeah. Like if you're gonna, if you're gonna get excessive with it, you definitely just go, got to go all the way in with it. And I mean, yeah, like it's kind of nasty, but at the same time, like this movie is like nasty in the way that I love how uh, House of Wax is nasty, you know, just like, yeah, if you're going to give it to me, go ahead. Like, um, and they just like keep ramping it up. I love that it's the, the two of them too, because uh, Agnes actually does the, um, the, the ice skate kill, you know, cause Agnes, I like that Agnes literally is about to use um the the like sharp uh unicorn thing and then looks over and sees yeah. ice skates and goes <laughs> nah let me switch it up and chucks them and like scalps her uh with some great practical effects um it definitely enjoyed that and then i wanted to look up okay never mind I, I thought I had read something that um that they somehow used the same actors for uh Billy and Agnes, but that's not the case. Um oh what it was is Agnes is played so by a it, dude it, in this one. That's what yeah. it is. <laughs> because 
Yeah, so I was just going to say that returning from the original film was uh, Andrea Martin, who plays uh, Bar- uh, Barbara McHenry, who's like the new den mother. She plays mm-hmm. Jess's friend in the original film. So they had her come back to play a new role, which I thought was pretty cool. It was a cool nod to the, uh, the original. And I mean, it probably helped that Bob Clark was uh, producing. Uh, he probably, yeah. he probably put in a good word. Yeah, that's probably how it made that happen. Um, but yeah, pretty cool that we do get a um, callback character casted into this one. Speaking of cast, we have a um, all-star cast uh, before any of them figured out how to act properly. Um, <laughs> we have a lot of notable names in this one. A lot of them have been sprinkled out throughout the horror genre. We have Katie Cassidy in there um, of CW fame, and she's been some other... Um, uh shitty horror movies she was in uh she was in the nightmare on elm street remake right yes and then she yep. got killed killed off um we have mary elizabeth <laughs> winstead one of my many wives um love to see her in anything genre related um yep. of course she starred in final destination or she would actually go on to do final destination 3 after um and uh the director glenn morgan here would co-direct final destination 3 so I guess she enjoyed mm-hmm. working with him and then went on to lead Final Destination 3 because she gets killed off. She has no characterization. It's like kind of um, whenever you go back and watch this and you're like, oh, yeah, like because she was a nobody here. And, you know, she gets killed off. She's not the final girl. No, nothing. You know, and it's like obviously now we've seen her in uh, Final Destination 3 and uh, 10 Cloverfield Lane. And uh, no, she is a um, badass. I, I want to see her in more straight up horror. Like I want to see her in like like some more of the, like the more indie art house, like horror now I think would be nice. Um, and then I Michelle, mean, yeah, you, you brought oh. up 10 Clover lane. I mean, yeah. that's the, such a small scale storytelling and yet it really allows her to shine in a big way. And I agree, like seeing her in that is, I mean, it's great. She gets to be in birds of prey, but I mean, I want to see her in the more small scale things where she's part of a smaller ensemble. Cause then she can shine more obviously. Right. And she gets her due. Cause I, again, I hadn't seen this and I was unaware of kind of just the up and coming, I guess, star power of the movie. Yeah. So I assumed she was going to be the final girl. And then when she gets killed, I was like, what the fuck? Like, mm-hmm. I, but then again, it shouldn't have surprised me because none of them have any characterization to them that makes them stand out from just kind of like tropes. Like there's the drunk, there's the Southern girl, there's the girl that uh, is fighting with her boyfriend. And, but there's no depth to anybody. So it shouldn't have surprised me. Yeah, and I will also say it is interesting that when you think about it in this one, um, I mean, Katie Cassidy is our final girl, but it's really not decided that she's, like, kind of the official final girl until, you know, the third act. Like, the first two acts of the movie, you don't really know who's going to be the final girl because, like I said, all of these actresses at the time have been, like, kind of popping up in places. They're all up-and-comers. Michelle Trachtenberg had been around for uh, Buffy, you know, so she had been doing some genre stuff. And then um, we also have Oliver Hudson in here. Uh, Gretchen Wiener <laughs> is even in here um, being a stone cold bitch. <laughs> After she yeah. gets to be the nice mean girl, she gets to be the real mean girl in this one. Um, but yeah, such a interesting cast. And uh, the way he kind of cast it was like, yeah, like, you know, I don't want, um, you know, I want to kind of take you know, the different girls that are kind of doing genre things and then being like, who's going to end up being like the actual uh, final girl. We also get um some, um let's get into like aesthetics here. Um, I think 
This one does the best use of the Christmas lights. We have lots of great Christmas light shots in this one. Lots of the reds and greens are played really well and uh, used to reveal shots. They're kind of blinking, so it's like kind of disorienting when you're in the house as well. Like another kind of layer to the house aspect. Um, and I mean, it's competently shot. It has some good effects to it, like on production value um aspect it's um it's pretty it's pretty solid in in that aspect on a nine million dollar budget which in 2006 uh, in 2006 movies were getting bigger budgets than that so like you know now nine million is actually like that's a pretty decent budget for a horror film now but back then like that was a tiny budget for for a um for a horror film so uh production value was there what do you think yeah, absolutely. I think the way that he captures the house, it really complements the idea that, again, like getting into that lore, Billy has peepholes everywhere, essentially. We only see a couple, but we have to assume this is how him and Agnes are watching everybody, right? Yeah. And I think that he does a good job of capturing that. And to your point, you talked about how the, it's very self-contained in the house, right? It's not going out into the town nearby or to other houses. We're trapped in this house. And the way that he captures that, I think, it really is claustrophobic and suffocating in a way, especially once you realize that, hey, these one or two killers are watching them at every uh, turn. But even like the lighting you said, I think was really, really well done in a way that I really wasn't expecting the movie to look as good as it did. But it, I mean, it ended up surprising me just how competently it's shot. And especially like you're mentioning that budget. I mean, they definitely did a great job of kind of just capturing the environment of it. And then you like uh, the I forget what you had said, but you said it was like disorienting, and I felt that in that when, especially when the killers start kind of maneuvering around the building, and the the sorority girls are kind of just running for dear life. You do feel like you're getting lost in that house, even though mm-hmm. the house is probably not that big. At the same time, though, you feel that kind of like scrambling intensity of where do I go? Where does this door lead? Where does that hallway lead? In a way that really surprised me and made it far more tenser uh, than I was anticipating considering it's so slasher uh, gory focused. It It is quite tense at certain points throughout the movie. Yeah. It's uh it's kind of like, you know, like the shining esque in the effect of, like you said, like, yeah, with like, it's like this house isn't that big, but the geography is like kind of spotty, you know? And it's like, we don't understand the geography, but of course Billy and Agnes do. And um, like I said at, uh, earlier, I love me um, some good old crawl space scenes that, you know, make you feel all tight and tense. You know, sometimes it's kind of a cop out, I suppose, to just like kind of make a tense scene. But at the same time, like for the context of this movie, you know, and some of the backstory stuff, I think it made a lot of sense. Um, but yeah, so this one is the one like of the three, if I'm just going to put one on just to put it on and you know have a and to get the best viewing experience for me personally is this one just because like there's a lot of bad to make fun of but at the same time like I like how egregious it is and just like I mean it is black xmas and they give you black <laughs> xmas in this capital movie. x you know they give you the x in this movie because I mean it's gross it's like you know got all these like weird the weirdness to it and this one does even still manage to kind of sprinkle in some of the um you know uh themes of men controlling women you know but then also kind of 
it being subverted too because it's like you know billy's being assaulted by his mother but like she has these problems with the men in her life and all this stuff and then when she has a daughter then she's happy so it's like the mom is like kind of anti-men in a way Mm -hmm. you know and then but then you also have um oliver hudson's character who's meant to be a red herring which doesn't make sense because we know that the second killer has long hair so i don't understand why (laughs) they need to make him a red herring but he is there to because of this you know sex tape thing with him sleeping with two of the sisters in the house and recording them and it's like and they like make them real scummy and it's like you know and they like take a moment to like you know address it but then they address it and move on and then you know he gets killed later and we love and then we're happy you know so again it's like they they still pull in this you know theme throughout black christmas of you know um uh going against evil men you know but again they didn't um need to beat you over the head with it either because they knew that you were here for the gross kills and they were like here we're gonna have this scene but hey look more eyeball eaten so it's all good right (laughs) (laughs) you only have to wait about 90 seconds for somebody else's eyeballs to get eaten right i mean i would definitely say this is the more fun movie and i would almost say it's the more rewatchable movie just because there's enough bad there that you can like sit around with buddies and laugh at how bad Mm -hmm. certain parts of it are but then at the same time if you have friends that like horror movies and they like them gory i mean the practical worker is solid it's not just that it's bloody or he's ripping out an eyeball like there is an aesthetic to everything that's shot that it looks really, really good, right? Kind of like what you said about the blood. People aren't just like bleeding. They're getting these like arterial shotgun blasts of blood getting spread uh, spread everywhere. Especially like when um, Mary Winstead uh, gets killed inside the vehicle, right? They're trying to like defrost the window and then all of a sudden there's just this blood. It's like she combusted or something (laughs) inside the car. And I mean, it's so aggressive and over the top, but- the aesthetic is so solid that everything looks really, really good. And I mean, even at the end when Billy gets turned into an ornament essentially for (laughs) the tree, like he gets skewered. I mean, it looks really, really good. It's silly. Yeah. He's getting skewered onto a Christmas tree, but like there's great practical gore in that shot. And that is permeating throughout the entire movie. Like that's the one thing when I started watching the movie, I was like, okay, I don't like that they're doing all this backstory stuff because it feels unnecessary to me. But then when I stopped trying just to compare it to the original and just focused on what it was setting out to do, mm-hmm. like the gore in this movie is undeniable, I think, and the kills in general. Yeah, it's just a it's a good example, in my opinion, of a remake that if you just want two different experiences, you have these two different experiences, you know, like it is very hard to compare them because they went for uh, different things subgenre wise and, you know, completely different tones while still, you know, having the, the core elements there and, you know, connections. But yeah, this is that one. It's like, okay, if the original Black Christmas, you like what you saw, but it was too slow for you and you like, you know, a more uh, gore forward slasher, like then this is the one for you. And like, I like that the movie also didn't like try to sell you on anything that it wasn't like I I went back and watched the trailer for this movie and they promised you you're going to get more lore and you're going to get lots of blood. And that's exactly (laughs) what it gave you, you know? So it's like, 
Um, yeah. it's a it's a movie you can just pop it on like you said with your friends. I think this is yeah the more rewatchable one, um, in my eyes. So we got one more Black Christmas to get to. Let's get to it. Black Christmas released in 2019, directed by Sophia Takal. This is the first one directed by a woman in the series. Um, And they are going to let you know about it. The thing, so, (laughs) so, okay, like, I hadn't watched this movie. I had kind of avoided it because I didn't want it to be what I thought it was going to be. And it's kind Mm -hmm. of exactly what I thought it was going to be, but also less than what I like. Because I was like, okay, like, if you're going to, even if it is drenched in commentary and themes, is it still going to be at least like a well put together film? Are we still going to at least get some good horror elements to it? And even aside from it being just overbearing in its, you know, message and themes and stuff, it's also just kind of a bland movie. It's very vanilla. It has a very generic score to it. There's no aesthetic or tone. Like it took me, it took like 50 minutes into the movie before I saw a shot that had like any personality to it. And then, you know, and then it's like, okay, what about the characters? And they actually try to flesh out the characters more in this one. But at the same time, you kind of it's like you like them but at the same time you kind of don't like I don't it was just like ah so it's like even aside from just like everything that it's trying to yell at you just the the movie itself is just like kind of because the horror elements like you know they are very slow and then it's like they are trying to do the whodunit but not trying at all actually so it's just I don't know. This one was just kind of like, yeah. what, 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 what did you think? Yeah. You know, I like the idea behind it, right? It's yeah. the move. The original film is about a man that is preying on women. Right. So getting to have a film that has, like you said, to your point, it's the first one directed by a female. So that is going to have certain qualities you would hope for the story that actually has this group of women kind of, it's being more focused on a female experience. And we kind of get a little bit of that kind of just what it's like being a female in college, especially when you're involved in sorority life or Greek life. But yeah, man, it, it beats you over the head at about every single line of dialogue with some kind of buzzword, whether it's they want to sign a petition to get their teacher fired for teaching them only white men novels that are racist from a hundred years ago, or, kind of the everybody is being assaulted just on a regular, like, I don't know how many people that try to get assault or um, are assaulted rather, excuse me, in the film over the course of like 15 minutes. I mean, there's lots of important subject matter that the film mentions. And yet it's almost comical in the sense where it's like every 30 seconds, one of these subjects is introduced, but then it's mentioned, but then nothing's really done with it. Right. I mean, they don't really explore anything in any depth. It's almost kind of just like, hey, we're going to sing this song about frat boys being rapists and then everybody's going to laugh and then we're going to run away. Like, I feel like if you were going to have a conversation about a really serious subject that gets overlooked a lot, singing about it to a room full of people is not really going to address anything. It's just like making light almost of something. I don't know. 
a lot of those kinds of moments really didn't do anything for me. And it felt like a missed opportunity. It's just like they, it's just like, I'm, I was very confused at, at the intention a lot of the time because they would do something and then it's like, then they, it's like the movie's trying to call you out for thinking about it, but then it's like, okay, but then now what else am I supposed to do with this information? Like, so like they have, so they, I like the idea behind like, okay, there's this event, it's a social event, there's gonna be lots of people and this is their time to like, you know, make a statement. Okay, that's fine. But then when they do act shocked on the reactions that it gets when it's like, oh yeah, well I put it online and like she like, uh, Riley flips out and is like, why'd you put it online? And then it's like, well, I mean, what else were they going to do with it? I mean, if you were going to do it, yeah, you might as well put it online. But if you're going to put it online, you can expect, you know, the things that, you know, to happen or not, or not saying like that they like just, just the response, like of just like, okay, like did, were you expecting just to do it and then nothing happen? You know, like even if the response that they get is wrong, you know, it doesn't matter. It, I just find it funny that they were just shocked that there was a response, you know, not even what the response well, was itself, you know? And then when the boyfriend character like calls it out and the boyfriend character is saying what we're all thinking. So then it's like, okay, are you, where is your commentary? Like, are you trying to gotcha me? Or are you like, right. it's like, haha, he's saying exactly what you're thinking. And that's, and it's like, but isn't that what you're trying to tell me? I don't, it's very confuddled. And I, I mean, they, they've already established that Riley is terrified of one of the guys in the frat because he assaulted her. He sexually assaulted her. And so this idea that she's going to sing a song that's going to piss off the guy that assaulted her and then nothing is going to come of that is just, it's very strange to me that there's this idea that you're going to do something like that. And then they all act surprised when these guys that are monsters start doing the things that they do. And it's like, well, yeah, I mean, what this one one of the characters, her friend, I think it's Chris, is the one that is always like looking to be the provocateur, right? She wants to get a reaction out of it. Yeah. But I feel like the reaction that she always wants is just shock reaction because nothing's actually getting done other than like they get the bust removed from campus of like the racist old headmaster. But I feel like she's doing all these things to evoke a reaction, but then she never really discusses a plan that goes past that. Like, what is the end goal of calling them out if nobody else is going to be addressing the bigger problem. Um, and her character's weird too, because they all know that Riley was assaulted. And then Chris has this attitude, like get over it basically. Yeah. Like all of us. Yeah. The, the, the car ride scene was so weird. Um, yeah. It's like they were trying to like make, you know, statements with the Chris character, but then also use her to have the character drama going on between um, between the characters and then like you know presenting her as this character that like is kind of the you know maybe like yes has like the good cause but goes too far type of person but then okay what are you gonna do with that character you know other than it then just being like now nah, she's just she's just too impulsive and then she's also doesn't now she also doesn't believe that her friend got raped and then oh she does a lot of talking 
but not a lot of action. And at the end of the movie, she comes through to save her friend because she's a fighter yeah. now. And it's just like, I was and, just kind of, and, and everything was just like, everything is tell. Like there was no show yes. in this movie. Everything is just like you said, like they would say lines just to kind of say them just to these click words to introduce the subject again, or to say something that sounds like something that would be tweeted this is also written in a way that's like you are obviously not a young person on social media, but this is what you think <laughs> we sound like. <laughs> like I thought that was right. kind of funny. Um, it's just oof, 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 oof. So let's get to the, uh, the genre grinder real quick. Um, and this one, because we haven't even gotten to where the horror aspects come in from this well, one. It takes so long to get there. It does take so long itself. to get there. And it's like, so there's there's not a whodunit, but at the same time, they still want to drag the feet of being like, is it the uh, fraternity guys and the professor? Yes. Yes, it is the fraternity right. guys and the professor. You know that from the first 15 you, minutes. So then it's like, why waste the time of, oh, let's try to shamble a mystery together out of this and they just have that one girl missing for a long time and then it's like we find out later she wasn't dead but she was doing the bidding of the fraternity was that supposed to be the big twist of the movie you know so it's like there's not a real whodunit aspect um this isn't a slasher because we have uh, multiple kind of characters killing here um it's a this is the cult movie and um, fans of the show know I love me a cult movie. Um, I'm all about them cults. And this, uh, th- black, the black goo cult of privileged <laughs> white men is the yeah. best that this movie could come up with that the <laughs> I just, I don't even know. It just didn't work. Like what did the, did the subgenre stuff like, what, what, what did you see here? And as a fan of your show, the asterisk I will amend to that is that you like good cult movies. And this is a (laughs) bad version of a cult movie. I mean, yeah, man, this, I wouldn't call it a slasher. And I do want to ask you a question about the kills uh, once we talk about some of the subgenre stuff. But I mean, as notoriously, I don't know if you'd seen the trailer for this one, but the trailer basically reveals the twist in that it is the, the male fraternity. Like it's the pledges. They're up to some type of supernatural thing. Mm. And so from the beginning, like why the fuck would you put that in the marketing for your movie? Because that completely fell flat for me because they show you that in the trailer. But also, yeah, the movie is not really sure what direction it wants to go in, right? I mean, it drags its feet in it being a whodunit, but then you know that the professor is working with the fraternity and they are the antagonists because he calls her out in the in class in that one scene. He's like... He goes, uh, raise your hand if you want to answer or whatever. And she doesn't raise her hand and he calls on her. Okay. Clearly he's targeting her for some right. reason. Which can clearly, we, can we yeah. do away with that trope in movies, by the way, the, the, right. the, the teacher calls on the protagonist character who didn't raise their hand because right. he's target. Can we get rid of that screenwriters? <laughs> yes, please. 2021. If 2021 has anything good in it, they will, uh, they will leave that behind. But I mean, yeah. And then, Again, with the horror remake, I'm I'm always open to directors and writers taking a new direction with something that's been established, right? I'm never going to be like, they can't explore this new angle because that's how things become stagnant. I might not always enjoy the direction they take, like with 
the 2006. I wasn't crazy about the lore direction, but I can at least appreciate that they didn't just try to do a shot for shot of the original. With this, they try to incorporate this supernatural uh, bust of the racist deacon that has black goo emanating from him somehow. And it's just like, this is the best we got. Like, it's just there, your acceptance into it is just because you're male. And then, and then, <laughs> then they're going to put them into courts. Didn't he say that? Yeah. That's the premise is that they're going to put them into the courts and the criminal justice system and all this shit. And it's just like, I guess uh, the, I guess the idea okay. is like how apparently, you know, one of the uh, advantages to being in fraternity and sororities is like, you know, you get connections and, you know, which lead to employment and like high positions, I guess, is like the theory behind uh, fraternity and sorority life. So like, yeah, he goes, we're going to get you, we're going to, we're training these boys up with this goo and we're <laughs> making them the, the men, the strong men they're supposed to be, the fighters, they're now my army. I'm going to send them into the courts. I'm sending them into the Senate. And I love that we already pretty much knew all of this we already knew it was the frat we already knew it was him but yet this reveal is still the most boring thing in the world like do we did the reveal really need to be the the professor monologuing to spell out the themes of the movie to us for the 17th time like it just like felt exhausting and then it's like that fight scene is supposed to be like empowering and stuff and like it, which is it, it was all right it was fun i guess you know but at the same time like i because i don't really watch trailers too much and i remember i saw like a few things and from what i saw or even just the way that the posters implied it was like i thought this was gonna be like a like sorority house versus fraternity house like turf war some like some shit like that that like goes extra violent like the like men and it's like kind of like a i thought it was gonna be like kind of like a black christmas like mini war movie of like yeah these sorority girls they're banded up in the house and now they gotta defend themselves in their house for tradition and the power and you know and they still could have been empowering women doing it that way versus you know giving us no no mystery or horror elements and it's like, you know, yeah, they gave us some character stuff in that meantime, but they also just gave us nothing else except spelling out the end of the movie. And then the movie, the end of the movie is just explained to us again. Um, so, yeah, um, let's talk some things that we do like. Let's be nice now, because this is the most negative I've gotten on an episode. I didn't intend it to be <laughs> this way, but um, I was hoping for better from this movie. Um, Imogen puts... I love her. She's yes. another one of my various wives. Uh, I love any movie that she comes into, and I wish she did more genre stuff, but more uh, go back to the indies, babe. Um, even though Blumhouse is like you know still smaller, but like go do something like Vivarium. Even mm -hmm. though I didn't love the movie, she is utilized so much better in the. I mean, and she is one of the better parts of this movie um she's just she's a consistent actor like every time she's in a movie she's always good and like brings it um has this like kind of relatability because she's not you know the the hollywood you know gorgeous sexy but at the same time she's like so hot like uh, i love her like crooked yeah. teeth and shit <laughs> like what but um and like she has some real um 
I really liked her um, like reaction sounds. Like she has some real guttural grunts and screams in this movie, and I will give her um, all the praise for you know giving it her all for you know what she had to work with in this movie. So shout out to Imogen Puts. I, I love her. She's fantastic, and she's probably the only reason I was able to remain conscious throughout this entire movie. Because <laughs> I agree with you. Like she is really really great at taking smaller scale stories and making a impression that stands out amongst the entire thing. Like you, I wasn't in love with Vivarium, but she is the reason why I was engaged with that movie throughout because she's able to come into this small scale storytelling and leave an impressionable remark. And you're right that she does have these very, it's not, it doesn't take up a majority of the performance that she gives in movies, but she does have this kind of like guttural rage that she taps into. And I mean, Mm -hmm. My favorite film that she's in is Green Room. Room. Like Green Room is one of my favorite movies that's ever been made because I just love that movie and I love her character. And the more that I kind of revisit Green Room, probably to an unhealthy degree, but I get more and more respect for her performance in that she really is this silent but deadly character Mm -hmm. that she's the only one that is really, I would consider like brave towards the end of that movie. Because in Green Room, like everybody's getting killed by Nazis and all this stuff. And yet- she's the one that is always going to go and take that extra step and kill somebody in the most vicious way possible. And she's very understated. And in here, I like seeing her kind of being, she obviously is the protagonist, but I like her having more of a lead role in this film because truth be told, the other characters, they don't do anything for me. And I don't find them Mm -hmm. to be defining in anything other than in their base, uh, characteristics like chris like i said her whole thing is telling riley to get over the fact she was assaulted which is just like what marty's whole characteristic was she had a boyfriend like that's literally the character stuff we're working with here (laughs) yeah exactly what did you think of the uh of the love interest with landon because i felt that that didn't go anywhere in terms of i mean it's it's showing i guess it's supposed to represent like a a potential future for her to overcome He's, trauma. he's supposed to, I, this is like, what's so funny. Um, I also just last thing about image inputs, um, mm-hmm. everybody go check out, um, the art of self-defense. Have you seen oh, that yes. one? She yeah, is so good in that one. A very, very great dark comedy, like black comedy for sure. For sure. Yeah. Um, have to shout her out for that movie. But anyways, um, so the stuff with Landon is like, is he supposed to be, the token this is the prototype nice guy that you know girls want (laughs) like look he he asked if he's allowed to dm her isn't he oh my god he's so sweet because he does and it's like they make him like extra derpy and awkward um i like that it wasn't like a serious relationship thing i like Mm -hmm. that they didn't take up a lot of time with the romance but their awkwardness was actually like kind of cute and like felt kind of realistically cringy Um, like so I mean I was fine with his presence I suppose but then yeah of course (laughs) then he is the stand in for look even the nice guys will get corrupted by the black goo I mean men of the world and and uh, it was just kind of like I mean it's whatever I like that I, I mean I guess it's supposed to be like maybe another horror subversion. Like he's the, you know, like kind of useless 
you know, male character, like, there to somewhat support the, the female character, but doesn't really do all that much. Because they try to, I mean, they subvert everything. They even renamed the cat Claudette instead of Claude <laughs> from the original Black Christmas. Um, right. So, I mean, they, they were trying to flip everything. I mean, there was just a, there was a line in here when Nate loses his shit on the girls, you know, when he, like, finally has had it. And, um, and he is going on his thing and he says, you know, like, uh, not all men are evil, not all men are rapists. And Chris goes, did you just not all men me? And I was like, (laughs) I was like, (laughs) it really does feel like fucking mad libs with buzzwords. I mean, that's what the script feels like to the degree where it's, it's comically distracting that. Every single, every other word is something that is like some type of buzzword and the frequency with which they jump between these different topics without actually saying or doing anything with it. I mean, they literally are saying it, but they're not having a real conversation about it. No, it kind of just, it invalidates everything, not invalidates, but it's not giving the proper due to the point where you're like, okay, is somebody going to say something with some substance other than just words? And like, even even the frat guys, the other frat guys in the movie, which like I I mean I guess it was probably the point that I couldn't tell any of them apart. Maybe that was a maybe <laughs> yeah. that was an intentional casting thing, and if so, if that was intentional, good job. If it wasn't, I'm just confused. But right. I couldn't tell them apart. But like literally, their only lines of dialogue were. I mean, I guess like again, like trying to subvert like you know like movies where a lot of the hot women character didn't have like good lines or anything and stuff like that so like literally their only lines are saying snarky buzzword things like oh yeah he's going on a going on a ski trip don't worry it's consensual i was like really that (laughs) didn't even really work (laughs) you know just Right, right exactly just to have the moment and then like at the end where he says your body your choice talking about like getting her to uh bow and stuff I was just like, ah. and then they also had like lines that I think they were trying to make like extra inspiring and empowering for girls and like, hey, yeah, girls are going to be retweeting this lines like rebuild yourself, bitch, or, <laughs> or what, what, what was the, what did Imogen say before she dropped the bust, which she holds up in the air for like a minute and a half waiting yeah. on this line. And I'm like. What is her good line going to be? And then it was so stupid. I didn't write it down, though. It was, yeah, she, it, we will not so be, we will not disappear or something like that. Some shit like that, <laughs> where you just like, first off, props to her upper arm strength because busts are heavy as fuck. Right. But also, like, just making it, it again, it doesn't, nothing about this movie felt organic. It felt like, hey, here's where I can input like one of 10 words that I have that are trending now. And it's just like, Okay, if you had actually taken some time and had the characters kind of like organically come into these roles rather than just right out the gate, like, hey, I'm going to say five of these words in the next five <laughs> minutes to the point you're going to be desensitized. I mean, even one of the bros at one point, he says, like, uh, when Landon gets a headache, because I guess the bust all of a sudden gives everybody headaches. He goes, bro, you got, I think he literally says headache, bro. That's just the yeah. founder drawing out your true alpha. And I was just yeah. like, yep, okay, he did say like, that. It's just so cringeworthy and not 
I mean, again, like you said, they're trying to cast all of these bros as just being like identical, which, okay, whatever. But like the fact that everybody is a walking caricature, it just, it, it invalidates any ability to take what's happening like seriously. Cause everybody's a cartoon character and the high stake, like the scope of the stakes to the movie where we're going to put all these guys into uh, different forms of office and all this stuff, this grand master plan, like it makes this movie feel like it's a cartoon almost. Yeah. It's like, I felt like uh, Takal came into the movie, obviously wanting to make a statement, but that's what they did. They had made a movie of people making statements like, and, and, and they did it in the very bare minimum way. Like they're, taking on the the approach that someone would take that only gets their opinions from reading Twitter and social media and stuff. Yes. And, like, that's very much the way it's approached. Like, there wasn't a, like, depth or nuance to what they're saying. Like, yes, like, we have been, like, you know, like, over the, over the past few years, it has been, like, you know, the tides have been turning and kind of, you know, people coming around to knowing the idea that, yes, men have had, you know, kind of this control and, like, you know, a different type of power that females have. And so it's like, yes, we know that. We get that part. We get that men don't believe women whenever they say stuff. Yes, we know that. But, like, do more than the bare minimum if you're going to take on these right. subjects, especially from a woman. Like, I mean, I don't know. Maybe we might see the movie differently. Like, you know, you guys are listening to this podcast and you're listening to two men <laughs> complain about Black Christmas 2019. It's not a great look, but that, at the that same time, I, but at the same time, like, I feel like I'm nuanced enough to where it's like, okay, these are, I didn't learn any new messages from this because you just kind of gave us the bare minimum. So it's like, I wanted to, I would love to like kind of go in and get more of the female experience from it take the invisible man um yes, earlier this year example. you know at first i was a little harsh on the movie for doing it but then i started looking at it from a different way especially once i kind of talked to some of my friends that have had some you know assault survival instances you know and like kind of getting a little bit more into their brain and that movie offers kind of a different viewing experience different perspective from um that kind of that you know uh the toxic relationship angle you know it had something to do and say and brought it in but then also you know it's just that movie's just better on every other level right. horror wise it you know is paced better like the pacing for this movie is awful the every the the supporting cast besides image inputs is you know just not even necessary they should they showed up and got a check Every, I mean, they didn't even bring in a house mom for this one. I mean, yeah. the, the, the phone calls were all fake outs for the most part. It would be, oh, oh, I finally got through. Oh, I just had a bad signal for a sec, but I'm, it's this person's mom and I'm calling you with no user ID. Like, it, like just doing silly stuff and then trying to use the DMs more to be creepy. Um, so this movie, it, 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 do you think... Cause, cause what I was worried about going in was like, I don't know, I'm kind of 50, 50 on like, did this need to be a black Christmas movie or do you think it could have succeeded on its own as its own thing? But at the same time, I think there's enough DNA maybe 
I don't know. I don't even... Actually, I don't think there's enough DNA here for it to be a Black Christmas movie, honestly. Besides them being in a sorority. That's the thing. I'm open to... I like new interpretations of old classics, right? I mean, they're not necessarily my favorites all the time. I'll prefer the originals, but my enjoyment, the new people's enjoyment of a new interpretation doesn't change how I feel about the original. So I say, keep making new interpretations of things. So long as they have the semblance of that DNA, right? I mean, with this, the only thing that is the semblance of DNA is the fact that it's, it's Christmas time and they're in a sorority. But it doesn't feel like a Black Christmas movie at all. At least with the 2006 remake, it has the essence of the DNA of the original film. It's just taking the slasher premise and cranking it up to like 150%. Mm-hmm. Whereas with this, it's such a mess of like a, a genre mitch, mismatch of all these different things. And it doesn't know which direction to go in. And then also like this taking a supernatural angle, I feel like, I'm open to a lot, but that is so far removed from the DNA of the original source material that it it almost it completely disqualifies it for me at least. Because again, I'm open to lots of interpretations, but you're fundamentally changing the identity of what the movies are. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? It's like if Michael Myers ended up, I don't know, turning into a monster or something. Like he's got tentacles now or something like that. It's just like, what semblance of that has anything to do with the original. Um, and I think also like, I don't know how you feel. I definitely like PG 13 horror movies. I know that's like a big hot topic in the horror Mm -hmm. community, especially on Twitter. I like PG 13 movie horror movies. I think it's important obviously, because how are you going to become a fan of horror? If there's only R rated movies, right? True. Most people are not going to be allowed to have access to those movies until they're much older. And so that kind of speaks to the idea. Like we need to cultivate a genre that's inclusive to everybody at every age level or every kind of stepping stone milestone. But to take a series that started off as R-rated and to go back to PG-13, I was not a fan of just because you have, you've set a precedent with what these movies can be. Mm-hmm. And then taking a step back and redefining it in terms of the types of content that's going to be in it, like content as in like ratings wise, uh-huh. uh, that rubs me the wrong way. I don't think that that's necessary because those movies were made with an R rating in mind. They were established with that. And so you can't look at the slasher elements and not think that they're dumbed down in this movie because they are, because they have to appease a PG-13 rating. Now, if this was a Christmas horror movie that was PG-13, a completely original thing, maybe I wouldn't look at those kills the same way. Maybe I would say, oh, that's pretty good for PG-13 horror. But if you're associating it with Black Christmas, Exactly. It needs to meet that certain standard that the last two films set. Yeah, that's exactly where I'm at. Like, I'm a big fan of remakes. I like different reimaginings, interpretations, just as long as you have a reason that you are making it your film, a remake of that film. Like, you know, I kind of look at something like, um, I had a lot of opinions on the Child's Play movie because it was like, uh, okay, you kind of have your own thing here. You didn't need the names except just to bring the recognition in, not because you actually wanted to tell a different story with, you know, the source material. You know, it's like I felt like that movie could have they just could have given the doll a different look and given the movie a different name and it would have been fine. It would have been its own tech horror 
movie, you know, on its own, but they wanted that recognition, so they used the child's play name. So it's like that's kind of why I see here is maybe uh, Takal had an idea for a different script, and then you know uh, Blumhouse might have gotten hold of the Black Christmas rights, and then they said, hey. We might be able to make these two work if you can just smush them together and make your script a Black Christmas movie. And, I mean, mm-hmm. I wouldn't be surprised if that's the way it happens. And it sucks because I feel like Blumhouse does have a pretty good batting average uh, when it comes to their films. So it is um, a disappointment when they do throw out um, some of these films like this. And, um, you know, I, I'm all I'm happy that it was a female director that got to direct the film happy um that you know maybe if she is a survivor maybe this was you know kind of um a therapeutic thing for her or maybe if she's had experience in one of those areas or something so if that is the case you know then I'm glad that she got to do that as well and like kind of and tell a story and it's like like because I'm I'm currently writing a rape revenge script myself like these stories are very important you know but I think you need to kind of come with your own fresh, unique take and view on it, not just like making a movie using all the um, top search words, you know, for the topic on Twitter, you know, like the, it, yeah, it just, it could have been a lot better. And then just, like I said, on top of that, just the film itself is pretty, pretty bland and vanilla. Like it's pretty just whatever, like, besides after so, i the pacing is so jacked up it's so bad like like I, I, mean, I mean i said earlier i love pacing the big thing for me and it's so weird yeah I, well that's the confusion again between what type of genre it's going to dabble in or which direction it's going to go in. i mean when they have that air quotes like that big reveal that there's a second killer who the fuck's been watching this movie for an hour and didn't think <laughs> yeah it's going to be there's 50 of those frat guys working together like exactly that second figure comes into the room and it's like it's treated Whatever. like a microphone drop and it's like yeah I'm, I'm sure there's three more upstairs like this is just what i've expected the entire movie so exactly. i mean exactly in terms of like the messaging behind it all you have to do is look back at that the original like bob clark has that character interaction between jess and her boyfriend that is such a power where she's saying i don't want to have this baby it's not your choice that's such a powerful interaction between those two characters and it's not even five minutes probably of dialogue. And it's something that stuck with me for a decade. And it's something, it's a pivotal moment in that film that stands out to me as being such an important portrayal of a female in a horror movie. And I think, again, it's less than five minutes, but then this film, it takes a wishy-washy approach to an important subject and it kind of just gives a paper thin blanket to the entire thing for 90 minutes or however long it is yeah yep i would say that's exactly where i'm sitting at so to close it out um we can go we were gonna rank these um obviously you guys can tell um (laughs) which one's gonna be at the bottom um so i mean you've only seen black xmas once now after this but um if 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 you were throwing a horror Christmas party coming up with a mixture of your family and closest friends. Which one are you putting on in the background? Uh, well, I'm, we're talking family, like my cousins and stuff, people my age. I'm probably going to put on the 2006 one. 
Um, and talking with you about it too, I mean, that is definitely the more rewatchable movie. I watch Black Christmas, the original, maybe once a year, I, every other year. Mm. But I could definitely see me throwing Black Chris, Black Xmas on, excuse me, um, <laughs> That's like right. twice a year or something with buddies. Just, I don't know, having having drinks or having a sesh and just need something on in the background. Like, that is definitely the movie because if somebody's in the background doing some shit and they see somebody getting their eyeballs eaten, immediately they're going to come over they're going to join in a rotation. They're going to bring over another thing of beer and be like, what the fuck is this all about? And I will say I have a much greater appreciation for it. And I'm looking forward to revisiting it after getting to talk with you about it. Cause in separating it from the original, it is a remake that I think is able to stand on its own as its own thing in a way that mm-hmm. I'm not a fan of like the story elements as much as you were, but in terms of like a gore tastic slasher, this is a an example of a slasher remake that probably got overlooked pretty heavily in the early 2000s. Just looking at the practical work, like how phenomenal are the kills in this? I mean, everything it, is different. It's not one note. I mean, it it's definitely a film that um, that I have more of an appreciation for now, and I'm looking forward to revisiting. Yeah, um, it is definitely yeah the 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 one that I am going to continue to rewatch the most. Um, it, it holds up so well, like it really does like these effects hold up so well. It is, you know, it's an easy, uh, party movie conversation movie. Um, but yeah, like in terms of, like I said, like with the remakes, like, I guess like, you know, that is a, for me, that's a surefire way to like help your remake is switch up the subgenre, you know, like switch up the subgenre and take, you know, the same story or a similar ish story from a different angle and I think that's when you're going to get the best results, you know, rather than trying to do shot for shot. Like, they're really, in Black Xmas, there's only, like, two scenes that are, like, homages to the original, like, blatant homages, you know. They, th- they throw in some clues here and there to some other stuff, but um, they only do, like, one or, one or two, like, blatant, like, okay, here's a nod to the original, which, of course, he's going to do because he was a big fan, which I always, like... Uh, you know, it's not always the case when a director like gets brought on, you know, sometimes it's just a paid gig to remake this movie. But with this one, you can also tell the director, like he's a big fan of the original one and, um, wanted to do it justice. And, um, and watching the original one for the first time, I definitely, um, I can appreciate for the, the influence that it has given to the horror genre, um, I do like um, some of the aesthetic and tone stuff. Um, it's just, yeah, one that I don't see rewatching as much, but I will definitely give it another go here and there for sure. And I'll just add one thing for the 2019 one. I would put that one out of party when people weren't getting the queue. It was time to leave. I'd probably throw that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that is the, that's the uh, get the fuck out movie. Like people are like, oh no, <laughs> like oh, you, this is what you want to watch tonight. Okay. Uh, never mind. Um, yeah, we'll hard agree there, but dude, thank you so much for coming on and chatting. These movies is definitely a nice, um, little dissection here. And, um, this is as fitting of a Christmas episode for the Blable and Cinema (laughs) Club as you're going to get. Um, so thank you so much for coming on, Jay. Where can uh, the good people find you? Well, thank you for having me on, man. I had a blast chatting with you again about, uh, Black Christmas, but, uh, yeah, people can follow me on Twitter at NotFunnyJay. Um, and that's just the letter J, not J-A-Y. Uh, my horror podcast, which is daily, Monday to Friday, is uh, Daily Horror Habit, which is streaming on all platforms, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, 
all the good stuff. Um, and then you can follow Daily Horror Pod on Twitter at Daily Horror Pod. So thanks again, man. Yes, make sure you guys go give him a follow. And I mean, it is a very worthwhile subscription. You're getting uh, content literally every day, like horror content every day. You can't beat it. So thank you so much again, Jay. And um, I just have a few more words before we finish out the episode. I know it's getting cold out there for some of you guys, but I think we ended that episode with enough fire to warm me up a little bit. Um, you know, I mentioned it while we're recording. Um, shout out to Jay. That was a really great conversation. Um, I really enjoyed, um, you know, the subgenre talk that we really got to dive into because each Black Christmas kind of um, goes into a different corner. Um, however, I don't usually get negative like this on the show, guys. I almost feel embarrassed. I mean, that's kind of why I waited till the last um, proper episode of 2020. We still got one more episode left next week, but it is not covering any specific movie. It is covering all the movies of 2020. Um, my favorite movies, um, I got Johnny the Horror Hack coming in. Um, he was on the show a few months ago. If you have not listened to the episode covering As Above, So Below and Grave Encounters, I believe it came out back in August or September. Um, August. It came out in August. Um, it was a super great conversation. It was kind of the prequel episode to Found Footage Month that came in November. So um, go check that episode out because me and Johnny had a great conversation. So I'm very excited to have him back on to chat our favorite horror films of 2020 as well as give out the first ever annual Bloodies. The Bloodies Awards are coming next week as well. So I'm super excited for that. So um, thanks again to Jay for stopping in and talking Black Christmases with me. The bloodies are coming, so you guys don't want to miss that. But that is going to go ahead and do it for this week's episode of the Blade Blunt Cinema Club. New episodes every Tuesday. Join me next week as we count down the best films or our favorite films of 2020. You don't want to miss that. Make sure you guys are following the podcast, Twitter, and Instagram page at BloodyBluntCC. And, of course, my personal pages at underscore DaddyDisco. And until next time, guys, stay lifted. <laughs>